May the forest be with you and in concrete always be your guide. It's time for architecture, coffee, and ink. Hello, this is Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink, a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. Hello everyone on the 14th week of the year. Whether you are a longtime binger or a new coming, welcome dear listeners. I am up to my eyeballs in coding for a mixture of websites, projects, and thesis. I've been trying to bring in a nice variety of types too, so by the end of this, I might just be better able to muddle my way through a bit more Python and JavaScript. Because after a certain point, you just have to have a little variety in your life. In the first announcement of the show, I have set myself a nice hard deadline of having the blog and my personal website up and running by the by this weekend. But again, I'll be posting every a nice announcement for it on the social medias that I will also be updating this week. I've also noticed in the past few weeks a lag in the time that my podcast gets uploaded to the distribution platform I'm using and when it goes out to the other sites that people are using to listen to the show. To those who emailed me directly about the problem, thank you for reaching out. I'm currently looking into it and seeing what I can do on my end to help with this issue. I wasn't joking when I said that I felt my to-do list, packing list, and project lists were multiplying in the corners, but I'm not looking. But other than that, I am finally starting to get excited about graduating. I think I had to get through my midterms and the last round of assignments to the belief that the end was in sight. I'm currently creating a funny little graduation announcement, and if it turns out all right, I might just share it on the gram. For those who are feeling the time crunch of a looming deadline, or the final quarter projects, or the end of the semester. I hope you take this time to remember to do a little self-care, reflect on your values, and tackle something new. But most importantly of all, remember to be kind to yourself and forgiving to your limitations. To paraphrase my little sister, Scooby-Doo, it's a new month, so we can afford to be a little bit honest with ourselves. Well, I know this isn't the type of podcast to talk about time and project management, please feel free to discuss and share suggestions, even if just on the Facebook page. I am also always happy to help share methods as well. So now that the self-care unsolicited advice portion of the podcast episode is done, I'm excited to kick off this topic as a continuation of last week's episode on cultural landscapes. Now to finish up this topic, after three episodes. First, let's do a brief recap. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I would highly encourage you to stop this one and go back to listen to Cultural Landscapes Part 1, but it's not necessary to continue. I will give a brief two-sentence review about what I was talked about before, but if this is a topic you aren't as familiar with, 
It will be better to start off from the beginning and build up a foundation than to, than to dive straight into the middle of a new topic. Oh, and as always, please remember to always check your sources, check your facts, and more importantly, check me. I should never be your primary source of information. The other episode that we talked about this concept was episode 2.8, Killing Stones and Sulphur Springs. So last week boils down to really three points. First, we spoke about what exactly a cultural landscape was, and from that, defined and provided examples for two of the four types of cultural landscapes. A cultural landscape is a landscape defined by, created by, or has cultural values, full stop. How and why it has that value assigned to it is entirely dependent upon the community, locals, and beliefs. While this topic wasn't originally part of the architecture and landscape architecture community, it comes from more of a geography and anthropology side of life. It has really started to take off in the community. And when we were defining and talking about this previously, we really turned our attention to the four different categories of cultural landscapes. Last week, we talked about the vernacular and design landscapes. A vernacular one is one that was shaped by its use, individuals, and community through the occupation. While a design landscape is a highly controlled, deliberate design with a lot of emphasis on the highly formalized. And I spent part of that episode focused on an example of each of those. At this point, we really have spent like three separate episodes working on this definition, so I'm extremely confident that all of my listeners could pass any quiz on it. But this week, we are going to continue and finish out the topic for the last time with a discussion on the last two concepts, ethnographic and historic landscapes, and finish off with an interpretation or discussion on how this can impact the design professions. If you are a new listener and come from a non-design background, don't worry. I always try to make the conversations and discussions as transparent and welcoming for all. Whether an expert with multiple decades of experience or a DIY enthusiast, I really feel like this is a topic that moves beyond professions and slides well into the matters of everyday life. First, let's tackle the first topic of ethnographic landscapes. I think when I tried to pronounce this word last week, my southern twang slid into the conversation just a smidgen. But ethnographic landscapes are defined by what we oftentimes call heritage resources. I really hope that everyone could hear the quotations around that, as that phrase is used on many websites and articles, and it would really be easier to list the sources that don't bring it up than those that do. Breaking down the word, the two roots of the word ethno and graphic both come from Greek, with ethno coming from the word ethnos, meaning people, community, or race. Well, graphic comes from the word graphos, ending in K-O-S, meaning writing. So putting it all together, ethnographic is a way of describing cultures and the concepts that goes along with them, but in a scientific and formalized study. Applying it to landscapes, that means we are focusing on landscapes that have cultural values. So this is where you get into sacred sites, ritual spaces, and heritage resources. So heritage resources 
can either be human or natural landscapes and somewhere in between. And it's not that I'm trying to be vague here. It's just that the variety of topics that can fall underneath this is very, very broad. If you remember from last week, we mentioned that vernacular landscapes are shaped by use. For an example I gave, was the landscape being shaped by a dam or an industry creating a reservoir? Here, the importance is a bit different. This category can cover rather abstract values, sacred sites, um, can cover everywhere from temples or church crowns, Mount Olympus, um, a very real location, also considered to be home to the gods. Some would argue that other worlds like Tirnanol or Valhalla could also be considered within this category. But a cemetery or even the sea notes that we talked about in a previous episode could potentially be considered here. At the same time, it can be a place where natural resources are gathered, sacrifices, etc. In the previous episode, I mentioned how a landscape can be classified into multiple categories. Just like people, landscapes and projects rarely lie solely within a single category or stereotype, but they can be exclusive to one as well. Ethnographic landscapes will oftentimes overlap with historic landscapes, our last category. So before we dive into the case study, let's dive into historic landscapes and understand the difference between it and the ethnographic. So historic landscapes have an element of history to them. They can arise through the use or the physical constructions. They can be battlegrounds, an assortment of variations. The difference between the ethnographic and the historic is that the historic will oftentimes include things like villages, or historic squares and industrial activities where ethnographic sites will include an element of sacrality or geology. That being said, it is a lot easier to see how a site can be both of these topics. Because a religious site, for example, can be both historic and important culturally, which is why I paired these two together and the ones last week together. Basically, by which category had the strongest likelihood of overlap, which brings us to the brief case study and example. A strong example of an ethnographic landscape is the Wells Petroglyph Preserve in Velarde, New Mexico, America. So petroglyphs are drawings created on rocks. This can be through a variety of processes, but it is through the act of subtracting parts of the rock to make the design. This can be through carving, chiseling, abrasion, as long as the deliberate actions result in a form of art, engraving, or image. This is the cave art, everyone. What is so unique about this location is that this site has somewhere around 10,000 images throughout the area. This is an extremely long history and probably has drawings created as early as the archaic period which would span from about 15500 BC to 880. What is also extremely interesting is that not all of them are representational. What this means is that not all of them are depicting a hunt or where to find food or events or animals. Some land more to the symbolic side of life, which means that they could very well be a form of religious practice. Now, compared to our episode on Gobekli Tepe, 
I'm aware that this idea of religious worship and culture arising within hunter-gatherers and evidence of it isn't going to be as surprising to us, dear listeners. We have already talked about it and the implications, but that doesn't take away from the site's importance. In fact, I would argue that this that it really strengthens it. We already understand and have studies how depictions and religious locations offer a lot of importance in history, and the value placed by the people is equally as important. What also strengthens the site's value is the span of time. The latest editions would have been added as early as the 20th century, like Franklin D. Roosevelt era. For those who don't know, Roosevelt was the American president, also known as FDR, who served from 1933 to 1945 when he passed away in office. He was the one who pulled together the series of reforms called the New Deals that pulled America out of the Great Depression. Now, that level of information and priceless historical data on the walls quite frankly causes the not-so-inner history nerd in me to freak out. Among the glyphs are glyphs from all of the eras. Animals from the earliest periods, crosses from the colonialism to the reform era. The history of the preserve itself dates only as far back to 2007, where the land it was located on was purchased and given to the Archaeological Conservancy. This was done by Catherine Wells in an original installment of 156 acres initially, with an additional 25 added in 2014. It is managed by, by the Mesa Preta Pitcherglyph Project, which was established in 1999. Notice something about the dates? So this preserve is in a corner of the Rio Grande Valley, and across the entire region, there's actually to believe to be over 100,000 glyphs. I say believed because in all likelihood, we haven't discovered all of them. Some of them may have eroded and been destroyed, and some of them may simply be waiting to be rediscovered. So the agency associated with the management actually works with several other sites as well. Altogether, the area they are focused on, the Mesa Preta, is around 36 square miles or roughly 93.2 square kilometers. The Mesa is an elevated landform, by the way. It is an extremely distinct formation, oftentimes with steep sides and above a lower ground or plain. Once again, I'm going to walk us through just a couple of the petroglyphs that are on site as well as the site itself. So this site is actually really beautiful if you have never been um, in the Rio Grande Valley before. One thing is that it actually has a lot of rocks jutting out of the landscape as you can imagine. A mixture of among the group glyphs of creatures and things that were very highly specific to the region. So among the most famous of the glyphs is always the ones that you're going to see of the creatures and the hunters. That's always the most common element that you will see when you're looking through sites and searching up petroglyphs at any location. But one thing I noticed a lot is going to be a lot of circular elements. And one of the religious elements that they pointed out was kind of a star. In addition to the people, and there is actually several different 
versions of people. And I think a lot of this has to do with the historical moment in time that everything's been added on. And you can really see this evolution of style here at this site, which I think is what makes it incredibly special, especially when contextualized in the greater region. There's a mixture of very simple and complex form, um, a lot of squiggly lines, and a lot of repeating motifs, either across each of the rocks or throughout time. And you can really tell the age of the rock as well. So one element about it is when you're looking at each of the drawings, the level of clarity you can tell changes depending upon what time it was added to the rock. Unfortunately, this site does have some issues with vandalism, overgrazing by sheep and animals, and mining and other issues. Of course, the final threat is the one that I mentioned earlier, which is erosion. Overall, the M PPP, or the Mesa Preta Petroglyph Project, has actually put together um, several different efforts to help with this, which is a mixture of the human and natural damages, the remediation effort, and things like that. And one of the articles that I will be posting on the blog is actually from or sponsored by the American Society of Landscape Architects and Landscape Architecture Magazine. And so if you have never looked at any of those, I would encourage you to take a peek at some of those sites, because in addition to a lot of the imagery, there are actually different ways that either you can help or different management projects that I just simply don't have the time to go into. Um, when looking at this site, you can really see the difference in the jutting landscape versus the dirt, and the erosion is pretty apparent in some of the photography. Um, there's a lot of flaking in some of the um, rocks and a lot of cracks where you can tell that water is being able to seep into them. You can kind of see when I mentioned earlier about rocks being potentially destroyed and missing why we're not sure how many glyphs there may have been in the region. And you can see the fragmentations of rock. You could see how over time we would lose a lot of these to just natural erosion process. An example of a historic site is both harder and easier to discuss. Because it can be everything from historic villages and communities, the locations that the Shuck, a grim or ghost dog in England roams, to the place King Henry V married Anne Boleyn. A lot of case studies we have already talked about have some form of historical significance, which is why I chose them in part. So instead, let's wrap up the episode with a brief conversation about the impact on our profession and why we should keep this in mind when designing, or as somebody once called this segment, real world application meets how to be a better designer. The most obvious answer, I think, is that we are now in a place where we are able to design and interact globally in our everyday lives. With this, I believe that it comes with a heightened level of responsibility. Because we are able to take the center stage, we need to know all of the implications and culturally significant topics that we can come across. And we need to have a respectful, open dialogue. Understanding and respecting cultural landscapes is a good step forward in the right direction. It is also a good way of analyzing and understanding relationships between the community and the space, time, and a way of expressing identity. 
With all the examples I spoke about, if you lay out the images and the site plans side by side, you can see the values, identity, and principles that define each project. I would also argue that this is a good step forward to bridging the gap between fields. The term cultural landscapes arose around the 1920s. So when I'm saying new, it is in a relative concept. Given the history and the projects we have talked about, this is new. But articles and periodicals in places like Muse and other landscape architecture and architecture magazines have been discussing and bringing in this topic as recently as 2016 and up to some published within the last few months. But in all of the articles I found, they further expanded that it can help with understanding and reacting to major issues like economics, urbanization, housing, research, and climate issues. This can be a tool or a method or theory that we can carry forward and develop into better practices. And that is all we have time for this episode. But once again, a big thank you to all my listeners. Please rate and review. If you liked it, loved it, hated it, let me know. Architecture Coffee and Ink is the name for all of our social medias where you can find me and or reach out via email. Architectureinc.design.blog is where the website slash blog that is once again being relaunched this week. But you can still see the previous posts and materials if you want a good laugh at my first attempt. Let's see. Um, oh, and the email is architecture, coffee, and ink, all spelled out at gmail.com. And again, it is always listed in the show notes. And please feel free to send me art, letters, suggestions, firms, projects, whatever. I love hearing from everyone. But overall, I think that we have thoroughly exhausted this topic, and I'm excited to meet with all of my listeners next week with a brand new episode. But signing off, as always, may your coffee mugs be full and your inkwells never run dry.